Well, let me start off by reading the passage uh, together. If you can open up to Psalm 119, 33 through 40. I'll read from the New King James Version. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues, and I shall keep it to the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in your path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. As I begin talking about these verses today, let me, let me start by maybe pointing out a couple of themes that stand out to me here. Perhaps themes that maybe you guys have even touched on as you've been going through Psalm 19. First, the one thing that really stands out to me is how God's word is life-giving to us. And we need God even to plant that life-giving uh, deep-rootedness within us. This deeply rooted faith can't be separated from something that God has to very specifically do in in you and I, very personally. Think about what it's saying. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues. Give me understanding. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Incline my heart to your testimony. Turn away my eye from looking at worthless things. Again, you see that God is actively at work. He must be at work for this to be deeply rooted in us. It says, establish your word to your servant. Turn away my reproach. Throughout Psalm 119, we see over and over again this idea of goodness and mercy and severity and faithfulness, uh, righteousness and God's character shining through. And in doing so, what's the response? Well, we need to stand in awe. We... We're at his feet, bowing down before him in reverence and respect. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God needs to put within us both the desire even to want his word, as well as he is the one that does that work, that we're utterly incapable of doing it on our own. And when we do, bad things happen. So let me try to illustrate this for a minute. Um, I like the waterfall uh, kind of impact or the effect. We see this in scripture that God gives to us where we love because he first loved us. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We show mercy because he has been merciful. We comfort others with the comfort we've been given. So you see this kind of waterfall effect happening in our lives where everything that we are able to do and be to others is a result of what God is for us. So Let me give you an example. Years ago, I have two daughters. They're now 20, 21. But when they were about three and four years old or two and three years old, they were really rambunctious. They were busy. Uh, I worked full time. I picked them up from their little preschool programs, and I came home utterly exhausted. I'm sure many of you can understand that. Um, Came home exhausted. Uh, So they began running around playing, and I sat down for a moment on the floor before starting dinner just to take a break. Um, And as I did that, they came swarming over to me and began playing with my hair. 
So I thought, oh, great. I, I have a minute. I'm just going to close my eyes, be quiet, let them play with my hair. They're occupied. Well, that was mistake number one. <laughs> Next thing I know, they're running into the bathroom, and they're getting this big box of girly barrettes and bows and glitter and clips and all the things you can imagine. And within minutes, my hair is turning into snake-like medusas, just going from appendages coming out every area. You know what? I didn't care. They were happy. I could just relax for a little while. And before I know it, they were running in and out of the bathroom and getting the brush. And Brittany, my oldest, um, well, they both did. But, you know, when girls have get up in the morning, they have tangly hair that's fly away, and so I used to take the brush and I'd run it under the sink water and I'd brush their hair to smooth out the, the flyaways. And so they began running into the bathroom, mimicking my behavior, and soaping, wa- soaping wet uh, brushes were coming out of the bathroom, and they were like putting them through my hair. Now, I had appendages in my hair at the time, and they're still yanking through them and getting my hair wetter and wetter. What were they doing? They were mimicking what they had seen me do thousands of times uh, in the morning. It was about the third time in that a thought struck me. Kimmy, the younger one, couldn't reach the sink. Let that sink in for a moment. So all of a sudden, my eyes popped open, and I went, how is she getting that brush wet? And I crawled over, and I look in the bathroom, and there she was dipping it in the toilet. (laughs) Needless to say, I think I was too exhausted that night when I went to bed to even wash it. But I remember at one point running my fingers through my hair, thinking how disgusting that was. And... uh, I think I smelled antibacterial soap, like Bath and Body, Cucumber, Melon, antibacterial soap. So here I can only hope the two canceled each other out. Why do I tell you that story? Because here is a good example of uh, my child trying to imitate me, right? But I would argue her imitation was grossly off. And I do mean gross. It was grossly off. How often do you and I try to imitate the Lord and our imitation is grossly off? We're over here, picture that waterfall. We're over here trying to be a conduit of God's character, of his word. But we're really over here digging mud uh, and playing in water and trying to build our own waterfall apart from Christ. And when we do that, uh, people notice, right? The source matters. Just like the source of the water for my daughter mattered to me. It might not matter to her, but it definitely mattered to the one being impacted, right? I would much rather have the water coming out of the sink than a toilet. You and I, we're a conduit of God's life through us, and we can't come over here and just be digging in the mud, trying to facilitate our own goodness, our own strength, our own knowledge of the Word of God. It is so vital that we're going to Him saying, you, you are everything to me. You give me this. I want to be so deeply rooted in you that I am just a conduit of, of the living water that can truly satisfy. So let's, let's jump in and look at it. Verse uh, 33. Well, even the reaction then, we're called to a reaction. So God's establishing this word in our heart, and we're called to keep it to the end, to observe it with our whole heart. You hear the psalmist say, I delight in it, incline my heart, and revive me. 
who is devoted to fearing you, you see this natural um, response that we're called to when the Lord begins to work in our hearts and he puts his word before us. So we can't, or should I say we shouldn't, be able to read God's word and not be moved, not be moved to respond, not be moved that our hearts are deeply longing and yearning for him even more. You know, all over scripture, we see that that's meant to be life-giving, that is meant to be streams of living water, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It revives us and restores us when we're weary. It equips us for every good task. It strengthens our weary hearts and souls. It is that living water that we long for. Verse 33 says this, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statues, and I shall keep it to the end. We are all travelers in this world. You know, years ago, I was traveling, I believe, to the D.C. area. I was getting ready to speak. So I got up really early one morning, had my coffee, and I am a coffeeholic. Uh, Probably less for the caffeine and just more for that warm feeling in my belly. Um, But I love coffee, was drinking it in the morning, got ready, got up really early, hit the road, on my destination. I'm on my way. I'm not stopping until I get there. I get on the highway, probably 95, get on Highway 95, and I'm driving, and I see a rest stop sign and a big Starbucks sign. Um, And I think, oh, I love Starbucks cappuccinos. But I just ate breakfast and had probably five cups of coffee. So I keep driving, not at all interested. Another half an hour goes by, go by another rest stop sign, and guess what's there? Starbucks. And I'm trying to go, oh, I do love me a Starbucks. And I keep going, keep driving, till the third Starbucks sign shows up. And now my will is weakening. I'm like, well, I know I just ate breakfast, but oh, I love a cappuccino. Maybe, maybe I'll get one. Nope, keep driving. About the fourth or fifth time I see a Starbucks sign, here's what I say to myself. All right, Julie, well, if you see one more Starbucks sign, you will stop and get a Starbucks. It's a sign from God. Um, And within 20 minutes, what do I indeed see as though some fleece was laid before me and God opened up the heavens and gave me a Starbucks? No. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of headed down a destination, committed to that destination, until all of a sudden something captures you, something glitters, something appeals to you. And we see he's saying, O Lord, the way of your statues, teach them to me, and I will keep them to the end. What a statement to make. I often think, man, how weak is my resistance? How quick am I to say, yes, Lord, I'll keep them to the end. But then things begin to capture me, things around us, the things of this world. Because we're all so easily swayed by what we see and we hear and we experience. There's a battleground for truth today, uh, both in our nation and our culture and our churches, right? This battle about whether we'll stand and allow God's word to inform the way we think or whether we'll allow man's word to inform the way we think. And what we're slowly seeing is it used to be God's word informed the world around us, now the world around us is beginning to inform God's word and the church we are in. 
And that erodes everything we say and do. It erodes our beliefs. It erodes all the foundation of what God has to offer. So I love this passage. I love the fact that I get to think about it because it's so relevant today. That if we don't allow God to teach us his ways, what will happen to us? What will happen to the church at large? What will happen to our homes and our families and our marriages? They begin to change, don't they? They begin to erode away slowly because the foundation is corrupted. The foundation has shifted for us. We're living in these unprecedented times where the world puts doubt in our minds about God's word, about scripture and its authority. We're tempted to reinterpret God's word to fit our beliefs and choices. God's word never needs rescuing. We are the ones that need the rescuing. We're the ones that need to be transformed by his word and rescued from ourselves. When you and I begin to doubt what God says or to question his care for us, we start to move towards whatever feels right. So you have this little glimmer of me driving down the highway going, wow, Starbucks sounds really right right now. Innocent, isn't it? Not morally ambiguous, not hard to to make a veering off for a moment, but we see how quickly our hearts are prone to wander, how quickly we are moved off course when we're not stayed on the Lord. I think of the, um, the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Lord, would our hearts be so focused on your word, on your statues, on what you say is good and right, that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verse 34, give me understanding and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. So the psalmist makes these requests so he can keep heed and delight in God's way. We see it's not simply an exercise in academics to know God's word or some form of obligation Instead, what it is, is a posture of my heart, a posture of your heart. That I may keep them with my whole heart is not a, so I don't get in trouble, or so I may one day enter into glory. We don't approach God's law as a duty or a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? But very, very deeply does it begin to penetrate our soul and change us and enliven us and move us and grow us and strengthen our hearts. We can't help but be changed by that. I did my master's in a seminary, and one thing I noticed that when you go into seminary life, ironically, your devotions tend to wane. Isn't that quite ironic? You go into seminary, you're studying God's word almost five days a week, you're going to church, you're, you're learning all kinds of interesting facts about the Lord, and it's so tempting for your devotional life to start to slide. Why? Well, maybe because I'm making excuses that I'm studying God's Word all the time. Maybe because unknowingly and unwittingly, it becomes an obligation, it becomes work and effort, and it becomes maybe something of the head, and the heart begins to miss out. It's so easy to make God's word a textbook we study rather than a stream we drink from and are restored. 
you and I want to come to the Psalms, to any passage we read, and say, am I looking at this like a textbook that I, I close? I've done my devotions for the day. I read my devotional. I've gotten through my verses, and now I can move on with my day. Or do I sit and I let it sink in? And do I let God do a work in it? Years ago, I was reading a book, and I'm pretty sure it was one of Tim Keller's books, and he gave this example where years ago he was in a Bible study, uh, probably in college. Hopefully I'm not butchering this story. In college, they were, they were um, studying a book or a passage, and the leader of the group said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take this passage and for 20 minutes sit here with this passage and just sit with it and write down everything that comes to your mind, every way this applies to your life. And so the natural thing is for you and I to sit down in the first five minutes, write out everything we see, and then put it aside and just sit there for the next 15 minutes, right? So he did that, wrote out everything he's thought of, and then he sat there. And then he went back down to looking at it, wrote down a few more things, waited again, wrote down a few more things. And when they were reflecting back during the Bible study, they actually had a show of hands and said, how many of you found your most profound, meaningful uh, thing that you got from this passage in your first five minutes? And a few people raised their hands. They said, how many after 10 minutes? And a few more raised their hands. How many after 15, after 20? And a majority of people found that the more they sat and they just resonated, they let the passage speak to them or they read it or they dwelled on it, the more deeply, the more meaningfully it came to them. It began, it began to be to them. And that's what God's word's like, that when we read it quickly to get through our day or to do what we feel is our obligatory devotional time or quiet time, wonderful things can happen for sure. But how much more when you and I just sit and we meditate on his word and we let the spirit intervene and we ask the Lord to do something deeper and more meaningful. It was months ago that I was given, <clears throat> given these passages to, to speak on. And so there were many days where that's what I would do in the morning. I would just print out the passage um, off of the Internet. And I would just sit there and read it and take notes. Or I'd just sit there and dwell on it. And that's where those two themes came from of God. It is God at work in and through us to do his good will. It is even God that has to give us a love for his word. And there is an instinctive posture of the heart that must change us, that we begin to change in when we do that. So think for a moment. Have you ever had a passage or verse that just comes to life? I grew up in a family in ministry, grew up in a Christian school, grew up in church, and I'm still in Christian ministry. I could just about think nothing's going to surprise me in the Bible. But here I am, uh, years, years later, still being surprised by Scripture, still realizing I haven't even begun to dig the depths of what God has to offer us. And there's so much more that I need and so many more ways that I need to be changed by it. We will never, never be for want of God teaching us new things in his word. That's how good and faithful he is. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. 
Are we so busy talking about the disciplines of living faithful lives that we forget to celebrate the delights of it? I love that language of delight because it's hard to get around it. I mean, when somebody says, I delight in something, you pretty much understand what they mean, right? When I say I delight in Starbucks cappuccinos, that paints a picture for you, right? When you say you delight in spending time with somebody, that's not just a, yeah, I can put up with you. It's something about that language that tells you it is more than obligation. It is more than I am stuck with this person. It is more than, eh, that was a good book, or it was okay to read. The psalmist says, I delight in it. Make me walk in your path, for I delight in it. There's nothing more life-giving or better than that. That is the challenge for you and I tonight, that we would walk away, that we'd wake up every morning saying, Lord, would you teach me to delight in it? There are days I might not, or there are days where I'm struggling, or days where I'm hurting, or there are days where the weight of the world is upon my shoulders, and you and I have to go before the Lord and say, Lord, make me walk in your path of your commandments and help me to delight in it. Maybe that becomes the prayer of our hearts tonight. Maybe it helps us know how to pray more thoughtfully. So you see, there's a, a, a relational aspect here we can't get away from. It's not just a God who's teaching me. It's not this academics, but it's a relationship that springs forth in us. God's not a killjoy. <clears throat> he didn't come to suppress us. So this strikes me, too, about some of these verses, and that is the, the language of law and statutes and commandments. You hear those things in today's modern culture, and we tend to think, what, drudgery or boring or I don't want anybody to have to tell me how to live. We long for autonomy. We long for freedom. We want to be our own authority. And we see authority as bad. We become entitled that I can live my way. One of the things we say in my family is, this ain't Burger King. You don't get it your way. Um, and neither do we as adults, nor should we want to. There's something about these passages that says this isn't God being a killjoy. This isn't God saying, you have to follow my commandments. Matter of fact, he's saying the exact opposite. He's saying, I long to. I delight in them. Think that's a kingdom upside down from the world we currently live in. We live in a world that tells us freedom and personal choice is the ultimate goal. But God says, dependence on me is the ultimate goal. And life flows from that. You will not be living a boring life. You will be living a life you can't even imagine. The language of delight, of abundance, of streams of living water. The, the language in scripture can't do justice to what God and his faithfulness to us will do. So what would it look like for you and I to delight, to enjoy, to find delight in walking in God's ways? Again, you look to verse 36, he says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Now that's interesting, right? Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetedness. You know, just recently I was hearing a story, and it was something about ants that are blind. And as I heard the story, I'm like, ah, I don't know, i got to look this up. So sure enough, I went on the internet and looked it up. Let me read you what the internet says about army ants. And maybe you all knew this, and I was the only one that didn't. It says this. 
Army ants, unlike your garden variety ant, are completely blind and navigate by following the trails left behind others. But if they lose their scent, they respond by following the ant immediately in front of them. Owing their lack of sight or missing their lack of sight, they will march around in a loop until they drop dead. As it turns out, one can force army ants in mass into these death spirals simply by diverting them into a closed circuit. It's easy to pity the army ant who does nothing other than what nature has programmed her to do, but it is a cruel trick of nature that she can be manipulated to so turn against herself, leading her slowly but faithfully to her death. But are humans different? Much like army ants may fall prey to death spirals, humans are subject to a similar phenomenon known as echo chambers. Echo chambers are closed circuits in which an individual's beliefs are amplified and reinforced. But where ants are led to mass suicide, humans are led into thinking their ill-founded beliefs are better supported than they actually are. That was on the internet. Little did they know they were speaking words of scripture. Think about that. We are very much led astray by covetedness. We are very much tempted, the things of this world, uh, to be shiny. All that glitters is not gold. The things that we think will satisfy don't truly satisfy, but we'll often follow them off a cliff, or as they say here, in a little death spiral. When our hearts are drawn away from the testimonies of the Lord and towards people or things we think this world has to offer, we slowly become blind to our own demise. James 1.14 says this, But each person is tempted when lured and enticed by his own desire. goes on to say, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. See, we know that you and I become like the thing we worship. If we worship the Creator, we image Him and His testimonies. Romans 1 says, if we exchange truth for the lie and worship the created thing rather than Creator, it will lead to our demise. It will corrupt us, and we will eventually die. Verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. We see here this contrast between looking at vanity, things that glitter but don't give life, and the things that make us alive in Christ. Think of this language, looking at worthless things. Years ago now, there was this documentary called Supersize Me. Anybody ever see that? Really fascinating. You'll never eat McDonald's again, at least for a couple of weeks or months, um, depending how strong your will is, until you smell those French fries going through the air. Supersize Me, though, is about a healthy vegan New Yorker who decides that he is going to commit, he's going to be the proverbial guinea pig, and he's going to commit to doing nothing for 30 days but eating McDonald's food. And this was during a time when McDonald's was saying, would you like that supersized? And every time they asked him that, he would have to say yes. So you have this healthy New Yorker, again, vegan, he had all of his blood work done, did all the test lab results to show how healthy he was, and he committed that 
Every day he would get at least one thing from the menu. If they asked him to supersize it, he would, and he'd eat nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. And what we see here by the end of the documentary is a picture of this healthy, thriving individual who gets so sick and nauseous, his doctors urge him to stop the experiment before the 30 days are up. Very fascinating. You see, simply putting, putting food in your body does not mean it is good for you or holds any redeeming nutritional value. So what's the picture here? The picture here is sustenance does not equate nourishment. I try to tell my boys that all the time. Eating that chocolate cookie and cupcake is not the same as having cereal for breakfast. Sustenance does not equal nourishment. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. So tempting for us to be turned away to worthless things, things that maybe aren't necessarily immoral, they're not bad, they're not evil, but they're worthless, meaning they, they hold no nutritional value for us. It's like a fast food lifestyle we're living, a fast food mentality that we engage in. And I think probably much of what we do in our daily Christian lives flows from a self-generated, morally controlled heart. We attempt to express personal holiness through strength of character or a natural desire to do good. But in relationships and in life, we realize that we can't do this apart from Christ's spirit in us. We, it's a relationship that we are really growing. It's a, a progressively moving closer to the Lord that we need. Psalm 38 Establish your word to your servant who is devoted to fearing you. The idea here is to form, create, to determine, and conform in us his word. It's this shaping, that, that potter and clay picture we have going on. Establish your word, this deeply rooted mentality. By whom? By the one who is utterly committed to living before the face of God. The, the woman who's chosen to trust, even when life feels hard. The woman who's choosing to say, though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Though life is hard and my marriage isn't good or my kids are struggling or I'm all alone, Lord, I choose to be fully devoted to you. That doesn't mean we always feel good. It doesn't mean we always have an excitement it means sometimes in the lowest moments, we're looking to the Lord and we're saying that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Though you slay me, yet will I trust you. Though life is hard right now, you are good. That's devotion. Devotion's not when I'm feeling good and happy and delighting. Devotion is when everything within me says, turn away, and I say, I'm committed, Lord. I'm so thankful for Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 that encourages us this way. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who's tempted in every way that we are, and he tells us we can approach the throne of grace and receive help and mercy. There is nothing you and I can go through that the Lord hasn't walked through with us that he can't sympathize with, that he can't know and understand. We're not alone. We have the spirit of the living God at work in and through us. 
It guards our hearts against our own fleshly desires, and it's the renewing of our minds as we see in this language here. God desires for us to draw near, not to push him away. We don't need to live in fear of his reproach either. So turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. We don't have to fear God's reproach. God is quick to forgive. He's quick to love, quick to move towards us, ready with open arms. James says, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. It is not a God that we have to fear or hold our head in shame when we struggle. He is a God that knows and loves us despite what we're going through. Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Here we see again this idea of this waterfall effect. I long for your precepts. I long for the living water where life really flows from. Revive me. Bring me back to life. Have that image of standing under a waterfall and the fresh water just flowing over you. I don't know if I can do justice to that, to how God's word is meant to be that for you and I, that it's meant to revive us, to bring life, to restore us. Imagine the envision being around a waterfall and how often we sit and we just stare at nature. And there's something about nature that reorients us, right? There's something about being out in nature that reminds us of how small we are and how big God is. It puts life in perspective for us. And when we are revived, when we're restored by God's word, life, life is found, perspective is found, and we're reoriented once again. And what we have to realize, much like the story of the hairbrush being dipped in the toilet, what God has asked of you and I can never, ever be accomplished by sheer grit or human determination. He must be the one leading and reviving and teaching. You and I just need to be willing. God doesn't need miraculous things from us. He doesn't even need us to be brave. He just needs us to be willing. We can do this if we allow ourselves to be submitted to the Lord. And he will do even that work in us. Because this all flows out of our identity as dearly loved children. We are deeply loved and connected to a bloodline, to Christ's bloodline. We are sons and daughters of the living King. We're not only free to, but expected to cling to a loving Father who equips us for every good work, even when we don't have it within ourselves. We're not given a picture of of certitude here, of obligation, but of freedom, freedom in the truest form. We have this picture of deep, meaningful relationship that liberates you and I from performance and personal piety and just allows us to yield to him and let him do something good in us. I hope if nothing else tonight, you walk away saying, Lord, wherever I am at, you do this work in me. You are good. You are faithful. This is who God is. He will take you wherever you're at, Whatever your struggle, however you see your faith journey, however you see your struggle with the word of God and believing it to be true or memorizing it or or waking up every morning and reading it, and he'll say, let me do this work in you. 
That is the encouragement that you and I have tonight, that his word is living and breathing. His statutes, his precepts, his commandments are good and loving and right, and he will help us delight in that. May God's word encourage you, strengthen you, and my prayer really is that the things of this world would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So let me pray for you all. Lord, you have heard us tonight. Would the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord? As these women go on and and talk in groups and in community, would you encourage their hearts and minister to them? Would they have time just to think and let, let your word resonate and grow deep roots within them? And would they love one another well as you have loved us? I pray this all in your precious holy name. Amen.